If you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to James chapter 1. As you're doing that, let me say a word to some of our, uh, some of the kids in the service this morning. The very first song that we sang today, JT alluded to it already, but the very first song that we sang today, All Creatures of Our God and King, initially I thought that that is the oldest song that we have sung here at Edgewood. I've been told that there is one other hymn that we sing that is actually older than that one. I've set that aside for a moment, all right? Kids, here it is. Next week, it can't be today, it's got to be next week, so that means you have to come back next week, all right? If you can tell one of the elders who wrote the words to that song and when it was written, JT or Mr. Andy will give you a bag of M&Ms. All right? So all creatures of our God and King, who wrote it and when did he write it? You can't tell us today. If you tell us today, we're going to forget that you told us. You have to come back next week. James chapter 1. Before we read, let me do just a brief moment of context setting. This passage marks what I think is the end of James' extended discussion on a Christian's response to trials and testing in verses 16 through 18, which is where we are today. One of the things that's helpful just by way of appreciation or increased understanding is to consider that the passage that we had last week that JT preached, which was, he preached 12 through 15, but let's say 13 through 15. Verses 13 through 15 and 16 through 18 are complementary passages. They, They need to sort of be read with one in mind of the other. So, if last week, part of what we were being told, what we were seeing in the Scriptures, were things like, in every trial there is a temptation, and in every temptation we have a trial, and you're wrestling with, where is, where is God in the midst of trial and temptation? How does, how does He work? How is He connected with, with all of this? And what we were encouraged to to be persuaded of or convinced of last week was that while God gives trials, He does not give temptation. God does send trials to His people for good reasons, but He does not send the temptations that we experience in the midst of our trials. Those temptations that we experience come from the weakness of our flesh, our sinful tendencies, not from God. Okay, so if God sends trials, but He does not send temptations, what does He send? What does He give? And that's what verses 16 through 18 go to say. All right, so read along with me, knowing that while God sends us trials, He does not send temptation. Here, positively stated, is what God does give us. James chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And sisters, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of His will, 
He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow with me in prayer one more time? Father, we ask now that by the power of your word, ministered by your Holy Spirit, that you would rouse sleepy hearts, that you would comfort troubled hearts, that you would give strength to weak hearts, and that you would further confirm and establish strong and healthy hearts. We also pray, Father, that by your goodness and grace that you would take out hearts of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Do this because of your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. So, three things that we want to observe here as it pertains to what God is doing in the midst of our trials. Number one, we want to consider that hard times call for good theology. All right, already, some of your eyes are being tempted to glaze over. Oh, my goodness. All right, don't worry. It's good. Hard times call for good theology. Number two, God is the giver of all good things. And number three, God's goodness is seen in the gift of new life. So number one, hard times call for good theology. Number two, God is the giver of all good things. And number three, God's goodness is seen in the gift of new life. Isn't it interesting that as James gets towards the end of this first section, talking about our relationship to trials or how we ought to think about the trials that we encounter, what our responses and our reactions ought to be. That the way that he concludes this is by giving us two brief little paragraphs, 13 through 15 and 16 through 18, telling us, concluding, wrapping all this up by saying that one of, if not the most important things that you need to get right in your mind is what you think about God in your trials. How you think about God, how you imagine Him to be in His nature and in His work is critical in the way that you will walk through your trials. If you do not know and believe true things about God, you will not endure your trials. Understand what I mean by that. Oftentimes, we're tempted to think that enduring our trials is sort of just lowest common denominator, right? As low, set the bar real low, which means enduring your trial just means that you grit your teeth and you suck it up and you hold out until the end. Meanwhile, on the inside, you're seething with rage. Or you've got all kinds of evil and perverse, wicked thoughts running through your head that you're entertaining daily. That's not what James says endurance is about. Remember, going back up to verses 2 through 4, if a Christian is truly enduring his or her trial, the evidence of that is that they are further matured and perfected. Not just in your actions, but in your attitudes in your desires, in your affections. If you are going to walk through your trial 
in the way that God intends, you must know God as He really is. I think this is one of the reasons why, as a hinge between verses 13 through 15 and 16 through 18, James puts in there in verse 16, do not be deceived. It's important that you know, verses 13 through 15, what God does not do. God does not tempt you in your trial. You know why He doesn't tempt you in your trial? Because that's not who God is in His nature. By nature, He is untemptable and does not tempt anyone else. Positively, do not be deceived. What God does do is that He gives good gifts to His people. Listen and understand, how you think about God is crucial and critical to your Christian life. Deception may start in the mind, but it always, always, always works its way to the heart. Deception will either cultivate desires that ought to be killed, or it will create desires that will kill you. That's what deception does. Deception takes evil, wicked, sinful things and makes it look good, makes it look believable. If you're not fighting off deception with God's truth, particularly God's truth about Himself, you are doing either one of those two things. You're either cultivating desires that you ought to be putting to death or new desires that you had no idea were even out there, that had never even crossed your mind or heart, new desires are being presented to you as true good desires that in the end, if they are not killed, will kill you. Think back to how sin entered into the world to begin with. How did it enter into the world? through deception. Genesis chapter 3, the serpent comes to Eve and begins to work on her to get her to disobey, to take something that God has forbidden. When God confronts her and Adam, do you remember Eve's response? The serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, It is easy to look at that and say, oh, well, Eve is just trying to shift the blame to someone else. In part, she is, right? But she really was deceived. Paul says not once but twice in the New Testament that Eve was deceived when she ate the fruit. Listen to what Genesis 3 says about what the woman begins to think and feel As a result of the deception, the serpent has been working on her, has been working to deceive her, so that in Genesis 3 we're told that when she saw that the fruit was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was desirable to make one wise. She took it and she ate it. And from that first deception... All sin and all death entered into the world. Deception will kill you. 
it will lead to your death. No serious Christian will be able to think about their trial long without thinking about God. So you better have your thoughts about God right. We all agreed? Okay, all right, good. So here we go. So what do you need to think? What do I need to think when I'm in the midst of my trial? What do I need to know and believe and confess to be true about God even if the circumstances of my life seem to say just the opposite? Even if I don't feel like this is true, what must I convince myself is true? What must I believe? And James tells us in verse 17, we must know, number two, that God is the giver of all good things. Here's how James says it, verse 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Some of your versions may simplify it a little bit by saying every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above. God gives good gifts. Actually, that's too simple of a statement to make. That doesn't run deep enough. Right? Notice what, what James says here. James says, every good and perfect gift is from above. He does not say, every gift from above is good and perfect. You're like, so what? There's a massive difference between those two. If James had said, every gift from above is good and perfect, that would be a true statement. God gives nothing but good gifts. But what it would leave open is the possibility that there are other places to go, other people who are able to provide good and perfect gifts. Right? What James would be saying then is, if it comes from above, if it comes from God, if it comes from heaven, it's a good and perfect gift. That leaves open the question, well, is it possible for me to find a good and perfect gift elsewhere? Because if it is, maybe I don't need the good and perfect gifts that come from God. Maybe I can get them somewhere else. That's not what James says. No, God tells us in His Word, not simply that every, good, every gift from above is good and perfect, but that every good and perfect gift is from above. Do you hear the difference? That means anything that you can call good or perfect, anything that you can call good and perfect, ultimately directly comes from God and no one and nothing else. Every life, every joy, every happiness, every pleasure, every contented moment, every laughter, every memory, if it's good, God gave it. Every period of health, Every relief, every healing, every rest, every bit of energy, every bit of work, every success, every accomplishment that you experience, if it is good and without sin, God gave that to you. 
every meal, every medicine, every life-saving technology, every amount of learning and technological advance, every discovery, if it is good, God gave that. Every friendship, every romance, every marriage, every child, every grandchild, every great-grandchild, if it is good, God gave it. Every lake, every river, every mountain range, every sunset, every wave on the beach, every waterfall, everything in this universe that is good came from God. We have not even started to talk about the good spiritual gifts that God has given. The indescribable gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. Of our redemption, of our justification and sanctification, of His promises, of the rewards that we have in this life and in the next. There is nothing in this life that we can enjoy that does not first come from the hand of a good God. Do you believe that? Do you know that to be true? He doesn't have to give any of it. And He's given us all of it. That will change the way that you think about God when life is hard. Just to sit and reflect on the goodness of God. You say, well, all that sounds very nice. Here's the problem, Merritt, with my life. The problem is that God does give good gifts. Every gift that I've received that is good and perfect has come from Him. I acknowledge that. No argument there. The problem is, is that God sort of gives sporadically. Right? I go through this week and he's giving me good things and then it's like the next week he, he sort of withholds or he stops for whatever reason giving good gifts. Kind of on again, off again. Is that true? Does, does God give all good gifts sometimes but not other times? In other words, does he ever stop or pause in giving good gifts? No. Look at the description. James says, the fact that God gives good and perfect gifts is ultimately rooted in His nature. It's who He is. And who is God? What is He like, according to James? James says, in verse 17, every good thing given, every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. That means that God always, say it this way, God always, only gives good and perfect gifts, and He is always giving good and perfect gifts. He is the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Father of lights. 
makes us think back to the creation account in Genesis 1. God separates the day from the night, and he appoints two great lights to govern the day and the night, the sun and the moon. How often does the sun give light? It's almost a ridiculous question to ask. Well, the sun gives light because that's just what the sun does. If the sun ever stopped giving light, it would no longer be the sun, right? But as constant as what the sun is, the light from the sun can be obstructed. You can have an eclipse. You can have an overcast, cloudy day. The energy that comes from the sun can vary. You can have an explosion of solar flares. Even the sun, as fixed and permanent as it appears to us, is still part of the created realm and can be affected in its workings and in the way that we experience it. Unlike the sun, there is nothing and no one that can ever obstruct or hinder God's goodness. There is never a moment in time when God is not doing good. He has always been good, and He will always be good. This is the doctrine, an important doctrine, of immutability. Right? Or if you don't want to use the fancy word, you can say the doctrine that teaches us that God does not change. It is impossible for God to change. Here's why. Because if God were to change, he must change in one of two ways. Either he must change for the worse, he must become less than he is, in which case he no longer remains himself, he no longer remains God, or if he's going to change, he has to change for the better, in which case before he changed for the better, he was not perfectly good. Take a minute. Let it sink in. He cannot change. God is always maximally good. There is never a time when God is more good to you than what He is right now. There is never a time when God will be less good to you than what He is right now or has been in the past, or will be in the future. He is always good. Your God can no more stop being good and giving good gifts than the sun can stop shining and giving light. Better yet, God can no more stop being good than he can stop being God. Why does James want us to understand the goodness of God? All of this 
is irrelevant if James does not see that even our trials and afflictions are good gifts. A trial does not feel good. It doesn't look good. It doesn't sound good. I don't think about it typically in a good way. It doesn't change the fact that God is good. And if this trial has been sent to you as his child, because all that he is able to do is to give you good gifts, that must mean that your trial, even though you and I would not choose it for ourselves, it must mean that this is a good gift that your Father is giving you. Hold your place here and go to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 68. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, 68, You are good and you do good. That's, that's good theology. God is good in his nature. That's just who he is. And because he is perfectly good, he can do nothing but good things. But then notice a few verses later what is also said. Look at verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. Okay, God is good and does good. If, a few verses later, the statement is made that it was good that I was afflicted, where did that good affliction come from? Don't be afraid to say it. It came from a loving, good God. Look down a few more verses at verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Christian, when this world seems to be closing in on you, when you find it hard to make sense out of your troubles and your trials, out of your suffering, out of your grief, in your despair, it is okay to cry. It is okay to groan. It is okay to question. It's okay to search. It is okay even to be confused. You can do all of those things, and you will and are. Some of you right now are doing some of those things. But one of the things that we cannot do, we can never say that God has stopped being good. If, as Paul says, momentary, light, affliction, 
is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. It cannot be that my affliction and your suffering is for nothing. It cannot be that a loving Father has sent us those trials in order to crush us. He has sent us those trials to perfect us and purify us, to make us more like Christ, so that our joy would come in our fellowship with Christ. And so that at the end of the day, after we have run the gauntlet of all of our trials and all of our tests and all of our troubles and afflictions and sorrows, we will be crowned with eternal life. And we will look back at this vapor of a life and say it was all worth it. Every minute. Taste and see that the Lord is good. To those who fear him, there is no lack. Magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his holy name together. Because this is a communion Sunday, and we're going to end this service, not now, but in a few moments, we will end the service singing the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. If you're not belting that song out, this passage has not fallen on your heart. I say that not to rebuke or chastise, but in full confidence that you will be belting it out because you have already been belting out the praises of God for his goodness and mercy in the songs that we did in the first part of the service. You're going to have one more time to sing again. Make it loud. And then finally, James comes, point number three. God's goodness, his steady, consistent, never-changing goodness is seen clearly in the gift of life. Verse 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. There's a nice little connection or contrast that James makes here in this verse. When you read in verse 18 that he brought us forth by the word of truth, some of your versions may say something like, he gave us birth by the word of truth. But the word that James uses there is the same word that he uses in verse 15 when we're told that when sin is fully accomplished, it brings forth death. Temptation indulged, sin pursued, fully matured, gives birth to death. Not so when it comes to the work of an always infinitely good God. He gives and brings forth life.
But notice in verse 18 that the way to be reminded of how, go- how good God is to you is to remind yourself once again, to be convinced of the fact that He is good to you not because of you. How did we come to be reconciled to Him? Did we do that? He did that. How did we, who were dead in our trespasses and sin, who were by nature children of wrath, who were God-haters, who were rebels, who were indulging the lusts of our mind and our flesh, how do we now all of a sudden find ourselves reconciled forever to a holy and righteous God? Was that your decision? Is that something that you conjured up? Was that your plan? No. You would never have called him if he had not called you. And he called you to life, not because he owed you life, not because he was obligated to. He called you to life and gave you life because he's good. In the exercise of his will, not ours, he, not we, he brought us to life. And brought us to life in such a way that he intends for us to be the first fruits of his creation. That's Old Testament language. First fruits are the best of what someone has to offer. God's good purposes for you and for me is to so work in our lives and to bring us to, the, to heights of glory that we will be the crowning pinnacle of His creation. And He has done all of that by afflicting His Son. 